this week and probably next week as we're landing into Revelation. I know we've been talking about it for a while now, setting it up, but that's very important. Again, today, I'm going to hose you with Scripture. So this is important because I want you to see, you don't have to go everywhere that I go, but you need to write it down. I will have you go some places. So let's just jump in. I'm kind of picking up from last week, too. Something I hear people say a lot is, where is America in prophecy? And everybody's got an opinion. If you see a, an eagle in Revelation, oh, there they are. That's us. That's America. Why? Because it's an eagle? Come on. Uh, this is uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Footsteps of the Messiah. He says, the true determination of where history is moving prophetically is not how world events affect the United States but it's how they impact Jewish history since Israel is God's timepiece. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 explains that. Prophecy must first be determined from the scriptures and then applied to current events, rather than current events being taken and forced into some kind of scriptural passage. Only if the current events fit the demands of scripture perfectly, perfectly, are these events to be identified as a fulfillment of prophecy. But, To go to current events first, and then, because of possible similarities, begin to identify these as partial fulfillments or as indications of future fulfillments, I like the way he puts this, is to engage in newspaper exegesis rather than biblical exegesis. He says, this is the golden rule of interpretation, and this is, I completely agree, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. That's awesome. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Unless, for some reason, the facts of the immediate context uh, studied in light of related passages indicate otherwise. And let, let me just finish what he says. He says, as in any language... Literal or interp- literal interpretation does not rule out figures of speech. So any language has figures of speech. But even these have a literal background. The key point is that the Bible should not be approached on the assumption that it's loaded with symbols and hence it's hard to understand. It is not. The Bible should be approached with the assumption that this book can be understood and just like any other book that it is to be taken literally. That's where I'm at. And that's where we're going to drive this plane. I said it before, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. That doesn't mean that all of your word is truth. That means when you add together, all of your word is truth. So if one piece is left out, you don't have the sum all of a sudden. See what I'm saying? Old covenant, your Bible says Old Testament, New Testament. Testament is a Latin word for covenant. Old covenant, new covenant, all of it together, the sum is truth. So picking up last week, we were talking about the nation. If you want to catch up and go back to the podcast, David Wiley, search it on iTunes, you'll find it and catch up. But we started talking about the nation of Israel, and that's where I'm going to kind of pick up today. Uh, real quick, back through some of the things we talked about. We talked about Isaiah 11, 11. Don't have to turn to these places. You've already seen them. Isaiah 11, 11, that said, in that day... Someday, future tense, he's going to recover his people, and he lists from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush, literal physical places. And then verse 12 says, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and gather the dispersed of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, from the four corners of the earth. So he's not talking about Babylon's, the exile of Babylon or any of that. He's talking about something that hadn't happened yet where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom who've been scattered to the four corners of the earth are going to be pulled back together. And then he says uh, in Zechariah 8, 2 and 8, we read that too, that he'll, he's jealous for his people and for his land, and he's going to cause them to come from the east and the west, which is far east as you can go, far west as you can go, and dwell in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 31, we looked at the fact that he uh, talks about a return of Israel and Ephraim to the land of Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, and Zion, which is the southern kingdom. And that will happen from the farthest points of the earth. So these are prophets in hundreds of years apart saying the same thing. Okay, 
talking about something that to this day has not, well, we'll get to that, but hasn't happened yet. Then we got to Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant, which old covenant, Old Testament, new covenant, New Testament. We're in the new covenant. We look to Jeremiah 31 in the new covenant. He says, I will make, Jeremiah 31, 31, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, northern kingdom, and the house of Judah, southern kingdom. Not like the one I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. He says, for this covenant I will make with the house, the whole house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. So he's talking about two events going on here. He's talking about bringing the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom together back on the same piece of land. And then putting his law in their hearts, giving them a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 35, he says that he is the Lord over the light of day, and he fixed the stars and the moon and, and night. And verse 36, he says, If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, If heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Now, we've already talked about that. Now go to Ezekiel 36. We're going to pick it up here and push forward. Okay, so what we're making a case for is Israel as a nation still in the picture. They're not replaced by the church or anybody else in God's picture. Although some people believe that, I do not. And I'm not saying I don't because... I love the Jews, although I do. That's not the reason I'm saying that. I'm not saying that because that was the way I raised. I'm saying it because of the scripture that I'm giving to you. That's why I'm giving you what I'm giving you. I'm giving you the reasons why I believe what I believe. And I'm not making you study Hebrew or Greek. I'm just saying just read what it says. Just read what it says. If it doesn't mean this, what must it mean? If Israel means the church and all of these things, how does that even fit? Okay. Now look at Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to who? The house of Israel. By the way, this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 as being the new covenant. So we know this is the new covenant that we are under too. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations, or Gentiles, same word. So we have a split between you and the Gentiles to which you came. I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the Gentiles or nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you, Jews, I vindicate my holiness before their Gentiles' eyes. I will take you. Notice that. He didn't say, hey, when you get ready, whenever he's ready, on his time, I will take you from the nations... All of the places, and I'll gather you from all of the countries, and I'll bring you into your own land. That is a physical act. That's not a spiritual metaphorical act, physical act. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I'll cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, that hasn't happened to Israel yet, but that has happened in our lives because we go back and say, yeah, that's exactly the new covenant. We have a new heart. So what's going on? We'll get there. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That is a command. There's nobody going to change that. You will be. It's his word. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain. He's basically saying that there's going to be great prosperity in the land, which is growing that way. Verse 30, that you may never again, never again, never again suffer the disgrace of famine among nations. Clearly, that's future. It hasn't happened yet. You, he's saying you will never again suffer any form of famine or problem. That clearly has not happened yet. And he says, also, you'll never suffer it among the nations, which also tells you there's still some kind of separation. Verse 31, after all of that, after that, then you will remember your sins, basically, and you'll hate yourself for it. And that's kind of the picture of grace, that when we're given grace, it makes us ask the question, why me? What did I do? 
you know, God, I don't deserve this. That's what grace tells us. And he ends it in verse 32 with, O house of Israel. So, a couple of things we're going to dig into. Number one, how is this regathering going to happen? How is this regathering to Israel going to happen? Well, that's cool that you asked because it's the very next chapter. Look at verse 37. It's like God didn't just hang out to dry on this. He keeps going. Uh, Ezekiel hears from the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. So he sees this vision. They led me around among them, and behold, they were there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So two observations. Tons of these people that are dead, and they've been dead a long time. Not just rotted to bone, but now the bone is very dry. This is a long time of very dry bones laid out here. And he says, son of man, God says, can these bones live? And he says, Lord, you know. Basically, I have no idea, but you know. You, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy or speak over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Watch this. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will, underline, watch this. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. That's an overview of what he's going to do. But there's a step-by-step process to how that happens. Watch. Verse 6. And I will lay tendons upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and I will cover you with skin and I will put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I, I will say Jesus, am the Lord. Now what are they, what's their responsibility in there? What do they have to do? Nothing. So what kind of covenant do we call that? It's a covenant of grace, but what if it's not if it requires nothing on one part, then what is it? Unconditional. It's not based on anything you do. It's unconditional. There's no basis it's it's a covenant, a promise that I will do something, but it's not conditional upon you doing anything. And that that, my friends, is what grace is, right? Because here's the question. Is this a picture of us, the church, a lot of people think it is. Is that who is this a picture of? Verse seven, he does what he says, uh, and there's a sound rattling, bones come together, pow, 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 slam together, and the the tendons are all going up over them. I mean, this is like a CGI movie to the T right here. You know, all this stuff, flesh is coming on them. But right before verse nine, he says, "But there was no breath in them." The word breath is the same word for spirit. They're there. They're fully, they look like people again, but there's no spirit in them, no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak to the breath, speak to the spirit, son of man, and say to the breath or the spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O spirit, O breath. It does say breath, but I'm using the word spirit because I see it that way. And breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath or the spirit came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. So, who are these people? Very simple. If you've been around me for very long, nine times out of ten, if I ask you a question, you know that the answer is usually in the next sentence. (laughs) Almost always. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are who? The whole house of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which is what he's been saying the whole time, right? So it's, inconsistent. it's consistent with what he's been saying. This is the whole house of Israel, not the church, not the Gentiles. This is the house of Israel. Behold, they say, the house of Israel says, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Now, when they went to Babylon... They knew they were coming home in 70 years because he told them they were going to come home in 70 years. But whatever this is, they're saying we have been dead as a nation for so long that we feel we've been abandoned by God and cut off from God completely. And he says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open in verse 12. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Man, Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, 
but God. Same language. But he says here, oh, my people. And I will bring you into the land of what? Israel. That's a physical place. And there you shall know, or excuse me, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and when I raise you from your graves. Oh, my people. So they're, listen, why does he keep saying you shall know that I'm the Lord? This is huge. Why do you think he keeps saying you shall know that I'm the Lord? If we know this is the Jewish people, the Hebrew Israel people, why does he keep saying you shall know that I'm the Lord? Because they did miss it. That's exactly right. They did miss it. And he's saying, Jesus, I, Jesus, am the Lord. And they missed it. And he's saying there's going to come a day when you're going to know that I, Jesus, am the Lord. You're going to know that I am. And I'll tell you how you're going to know because some things are going to happen. So he says, um, oh, my people. So now they're regathered, just like he said, but they're, they have no breath. They have no spirit. So verse 14 says, then, or and, I will put my spirit, or breath, within you, and you shall live. And I will place you where? In your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, or Jesus, I would say. I have spoken, or, or literally, I, I am the word. Jesus is the word. And I will do it, declares the Lord. Verse 15. Word of the Lord came to me again. Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph. So one's for Judah and then another one's for Israel. So one's for the north and one's for the south. And do what with them, verse 17? Join them one to another into one stick. That they may become one in your hand. Hold them together as one stick. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what these things mean? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm going to take, by, by, by the way, I'm about to, doesn't mean it's going to happen any second. That means it could happen any time. It means it's imminent. In that language, it means it will certainly happen. I will take jo- the stick of Joseph, and I'll take the tribes associated with him, which would be the northern kingdom, and I will join it with the stick of Judah. And make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, watch this. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from all of the nations among which they have gone. And I will, watch, will gather them from all around and bring them where? Into their own land. And I will make them what? One nation. Where? In the land. Just in case you're curious. Where is that land? On the mountains. Physical location of Israel. Physical location. It is impossible to do gymnastics and get around this. I don't even. I I have the hardest time understanding why people want to get around this so bad. Verse 23. Almost about halfway down. But here go the I wills again. I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they shall be my people. And I will be their God. Then he goes to verse 25. They shall dwell where? In the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. This is a physical place. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there. How long? How long? Forever. Forever, it's theirs. And he's talking about a physical land. He said, David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be a what? Everlasting covenant forever with who? Them. Them. Now, if you're feeling screwed up here a minute and left out, just hold on. It's with them. And I will set them in their land, and I will multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst, or my temple. That's an important point. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Watch verse 28. Then the nations, now that's huge, because guess what? That means whenever this occurs, there's still others See what I'm saying? We're getting into, I mean, if you try to spiritualize all this, you're going to have to do huge gymnastics. He's saying that when he does all this, 
there will still be other nations, other places. And he says, then the nations will know that I am the Lord or Jesus who sanctifies Israel. Israel, they'll know that he's the Jesus who set apart Israel. When my sanctuary is what? In their midst. How long? Forever. Okay, Fruchtenbaum again in a great book, highly recommended. It's called Israelogy. It's a giant book, but it's awesome. He says, Israel, in the period of the Messianic kingdom, that's like the thousand-year reign that started most of this discussion, excuse me, is a major theme of the Old Testament prophets. Get this, Old Testament prophets. We talked about everybody wants to say it's Revelation 20 with the whole millennium thing. No. It's a main major theme of Old Testament prophets. Indeed, it was the high point of Old Testament prophecy and every writing prophet, with the exception of Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Malachi, had something to say about this kingdom. To spiritualize or allegorize away such a great amount of Scripture is to confuse the whole science of interpretation. There is no reason to spiritualize any of these prophecies any more than there is any reason to do so with those that dealt with Christ's first coming, such as the virgin birth, or that he would be born in Bethlehem, or that he would die, or that his physical resurrection would happen. When they said all that in the Old Testament, they meant it. That wasn't allegorical. Those were lit. It wasn't allegorical that he'd be born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. Okay? It says, it is the extensive prophetic writings as well as the unfulfilled proportions of these covenants that provide the basis for the belief in the future messianic kingdom or thousand year reign, whatever you want to call it, and not merely one chapter in a highly symbolic book referring to Revelation 20. So it's not that. It's based on a lot. So when does it happen? Where, how, you know, how's it going to happen? We just read that. He's going to bring them there. When's it going to happen? Okay? When's it going to happen? Well, many of you are familiar with the term tribulation. You're going to hear a lot more about it. But in the Old Testament, the tribulation is discussed. It's just called Day of Jehovah or Day of the Lord. Whenever you see Day of Jehovah or Day of the Lord, it's referring to the same thing the New Testament people would call the tribulation. It begins with the signing of a seven-year new covenant, but made with a false god. That we call the Antichrist. So there's going to be a this covenant that they're looking for. They're going to get it. It's going to get made with them. But it's going to be a false one with a false God. That's going to signal the start of things. But in order for that to happen. You got to have a Jewish state. You got to have an Israel. Can't make a covenant with a nation that doesn't exist. Well for us that's not a big deal. But you got to understand something. In 70 A.D. The temple was erased off the map. By 135 A.D., there is no Israel on the map. It says what? You know? What does the map say as of about 135? Or what was the area called? Palestine. You go back and you look at maps your grandparents have, it's going to say Palestine. It's not going to say Israel. There's no Israel. 70 A.D. to 135 A.D. in there, Rome systematically wiped them off the map. So, when is it going to happen? Well, you don't have to go there. We talked about it last week. Just hear me out. Matthew 24, 7. Jesus said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of these birth pains, of these things happening. These are the beginning. So, I said last week, we'll pick it up again. Immediately following World War I and World War II, listen, write it down. April 11th. 1948, the announcement was made of a great discovery in Israel. What was it? You know? Probably one of the most amazing archaeological discoveries in the history of time. No kidding. Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were announced April 11th, 1948. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but what this did is this validated all of the Old Testament as legit and true. Validated it as accurate. That was 1948. May 14th, a month later, 1948, what happened? Israel became a nation. May 14th, 1948, Israel is a nation again. Now, get this. The replacement theology people, particularly amillennialists, see the modern Jewish state as purely an accident of history. 
totally unrelated to any type of Bible prophecy. How can you do that? I don't understand how you can do that. If that's not good enough, June 5th through 10th, 1967, was the Six-Day War. Now, why is that significant? You know? Israel went to war with Egypt, Syria, Jordan. I think that's it. can't remember, maybe one more. But we went to war with his Arab neighbors. Why? They felt threatened. Israel annihilated their, all of those nations' entire air force annihilated in one day. And within six days, destroyed them, annihilated them. And in the process of doing that, something very big happened. After 19 years as a nation... In the land, over there as a nation, on the map again, after 19 years, they reclaimed Jerusalem. They didn't have Jerusalem. They had part of it, but not, not the important part, not where the temple was. They didn't have any of that. But as a result, after 19 years as a nation that way, and then all of a sudden, they get the temple back. They get all of Jerusalem back. So are all these things really, uh, you know, are all these things really coincidence? Is this really uh, unrelated, or as some people would say, some of, some of the really hyper-Calvinists, is this an apostasy that they're over there? Is this the devil doing this or something? I mean, think about this. Uh, again, I, I go back to Fruchtenbaum because he's an expert on Israel, but in Footsteps of the Messiah, he says, Israel is a land brought back from the sword after 1,900 years 46 invasions and a war of independence. The land is Jewish again and free from foreign domination. 1,900 years. That's insane. To come back as the same people group to the same exact place. The Jews in Israel today come from 80 to 90 different nations. Talking about being scattered from the ends of the earth. The continual waste places that were there, the, 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 just the wasted, marched over, blown up, obliterated land, they today, those places are being rebuilt. Ancient places are being turned into modern towns and cities. They dwell securely in the land. That, that, the prophecy in Ezekiel 38 that they'll dwell securely when this happens, it doesn't mean that they will be at perfect peace. It means they will have security, and it's referring to a false sense of security. It means this. It means just like what we think. Nobody would dare invade America. We're secure because we're the strongest power in the world. That's the same idea. That's what it means. It just means they'll dwell in the land. They'll feel secure like they've got a grip on it. Okay? So the nation is there. I don't care what you say. Is there. So the temple there's four passages, we'll look at them later in Scripture, that deal with a temple that's in the future that hasn't happened yet. Daniel 9.27 talks about this man, this false god, coming into a temple. Matthew 24.15, Jesus says that when you see this man standing in the holy place, which is the temple. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, Paul talks about this so-called God sitting in the temple of God, calling himself God. And Revelation 11, 2 talks about a temple of God in the future to be measured. So is there a temple? Now, right now, it's gone. So most people, again, go back to these people that say all this happened in the first, millennium, the first uh, century. But no, these people talk about a temple in the future. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's not going to happen. But you heard what I just said about the Six-Day War. Is that irony? Uh, there is a, a group in the Muslim quarter of the old city right now that's training priests on how to do sacrificial rites. There is a place in the Jewish old city, Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, that's in the process of making furnishings for the new temple. Let me show you a billboard. Is uh, I took this picture when I was there. Do you think they're looking for a temple? Think they're expecting? They're expecting the temple. All of us Gentiles in the church can act like it's not going to happen all day long, but they're sure expecting it. I promise you they're expecting it. Watch this. I'm going to show you this little quick video clip real quick. I mean, this is up to date. Even if it looks old. Jerusalem, eternal city of God. The very word is a symphony to the ear for all to whom the Bible is precious. And at the heart of Jerusalem lies its secret the holy temple on Mount Moriah, place of the Shekhinah, the divine presence, called by Isaiah the house of prayer for all nations. For 2,000 years, the Jewish people have prayed to return to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the holy temple. 
Today, we have returned. The city of Jerusalem is built up, a thriving, vibrant city. But what of Jerusalem's secret? What of the dream? For over two decades, the Temple Institute has been recreating the biblically appointed vessels to be used in the Holy Temple in preparation for its rebuilding. Tens of sacred vessels have been completed. These vessels and priestly garments on exhibit in the Temple Institute's Treasures of the Holy Temple exhibition in Jerusalem's Old City are not copies or replicas, but are actually fit to be used according to strict biblical standards in the New Holy Temple. Original source materials such as gold, silver, and copper and the original sizes and measurements are used exclusively. Each year, 100,000 visitors come to see, learn about, and experience the promise of the Holy Temple. A visit to the Temple Institute is the highlight of a trip to Israel, for in the presence of these vessels, one can feel that the time of the redemption is indeed drawing close. The golden menorah, the golden table of the showbread, the incense altar, and tens of other sacred vessels have been painstakingly and precisely recreated. Silver trumpets, Levitical harps and lyres are ready to be heard once again in the streets of Jerusalem. The priestly garments, including the uniform of the high priest, the ephod, the breastplate and the golden crown, the result of years of intense research and the efforts of Israel's finest artists and craftsmen are on display for all to see. The Temple Institute provides specially trained guides who explain the history of the Holy Temple the nature of the divine service, and the significance of the Holy Temple for all mankind. Okay, that's good. You can click over to the next. So, uh, if you don't think they're looking for a temple, you lost it. Because did you hear what they said? These are not replicas. They're designed for use. I mean, they're, 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 this is going to happen. This is, there will be another temple, I can promise you. I, and the reason I know is because when you look at everything else, it's happening just like it said it was going to happen. I, why do we need to spiritualize it, allegorize it, or whatever? It's happening just like it said it was going to happen. If you've been to Israel, uh, you've probably even been there. I've been there. I know the team that just got back had gone there. So uh, those are not Christians. Those are Jewish people. So I'm not showing you something that's promoting a Christian way. That's what the Jews are doing. They are going to build the temple because they want it again. So, convinced, I hope, or at least you understand where I'm coming from, that I say Israel plays a role. So now I made all this garbage about the, not garbage, (laughs) I made all this talk about the new covenant. So, where do we fit in? What about us? Aren't we under the new covenant? Didn't Christ do that at Calvary? How come you're saying it's going to happen in the future? Didn't Christ do it at the cross? Yes, Christ did it at the cross. But, Christ did it at the cross with the Jews. Now, you may be like, wait, wait, wait. If this is stinging, by the way, a little side note, if this is stinging at the moment, that's probably pride. Just letting you know, that's probably pride. So you better hold on to it, okay? So go to Matthew 10. I'm going to have you flip through a few places, and I'm going to show you. Are you saved? Yes. So don't think I'm telling anybody they're not saved, okay? It's not, you are part of this. You are in the new covenant. But I'm, I want you to see that God's word holds true, okay? Matthew 10 Verse 5, these 12 disciples Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere, what? Among the Gentiles. Jesus, by the way, what, Jesus? I thought Jesus was with everybody. What do you mean, go nowhere among the Gentiles? And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of what? The house of Israel. See, we all want to be lost sheep. Whoa, hold up now. Most of the time when he's talking about lost sheep, he's referring to Israel. We're part of it. I got that. But what I'm saying here is, this one is crystal clear. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom means king, people, and place. Okay? Obviously, Christ being the king. Go over to chapter 15. Uh, I would love to spend some time on this, but I don't have time. Uh, for for it, so I'm just going to show it to you. But this is one of the awesomest awesomest is that a word? One of the greatest passages to me in the in all of the encounters Jesus has with people. Verse 22, Matthew 15. Behold, a Canaanite woman, so Gentile Canaanite woman from that region. So she lives in the area, but she's not a Jew, not an Israelite. Came out and was crying, "Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David, or Messiah." You could say, "My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon." But he did not answer her a word. He totally ignores her. 
Jesus totally ignores the woman. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Jesus, please send her away. She's crying out after. She's wearing us out. And he says, he answered, I was sent only, I was sent only to who? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Does that sting? Hold on. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, and he answered her, is it not right to take the children's bread? It is not right, excuse me, to take the children, Israel's bread, and throw it to the what? Dogs. He calls the woman a dog. I don't know about y'all, but I would have slammed lost it at that point if it were me. But that's what he did. I don't care. I don't care how you feel about it. He's clearly making a differentiation between two peoples here. I don't care how you feel about it. He is. And she says, she says, yes, but even the dogs eat from the master's table. Here's, see, that's why I said it was pride. Look at how she responds. I don't care. Just give me a crumb from the table. Just a crumb. I don't care. I don't care if they're the children. I don't care. Just let me have a crumb from your table. And look at his response to that. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. She was healed instantly. He did include the Gentiles, but he was there for the Jews because he was instigating a covenant made with the Jews. People say the church is ushering in the kingdom. Okay, I'll go with that. What kingdom? Which kingdom? I'll tell you which kingdom you're looking at it. Go to Acts chapter 1. And you can stay in Acts because we'll roll through it here in just a second. Acts chapter 1. So when they had come, verse 6, I'm sorry. When the disciples had come together, they asked him. This is right when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Lord, look at their question. Look at their question. Will you at this time restore what? The kingdom to who? Israel. See, they're thinking that he's the Messiah. He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, uh, I'm not doing it for Israel. I'm doing it for all of the peoples of all of the world. Not what he said. He says, not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority. He's not denying it. He's delaying it. Not denying it. He's delaying it. He's not saying there is going to be a kingdom of Israel. He's just saying it's not now. Not for you to know when that's going to happen. Then he says, but this is for now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness or you will be the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, think about it. Jesus proclaimed at the Last Supper. That's when he said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. My blood spilled for you. This is the new covenant. My body broken for you. Who was he doing that with? Twelve Jews. Twelve Jewish people, disciples. So even as he's making that covenant unknown, he's honoring it by doing it with twelve Jewish disciples. So, so, so where does the church fit in all this? National Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. It, Isaiah 49, 6 tells you that. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But they became a wall instead. And they blocked God out. I mean, blocked the people out said, God is for us. So Jesus built his church to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. That's what Acts 1.8 says. But a Jewish church, because the covenant is with the Jews first. You got, everybody likes to quote this. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, comma, comma, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's clearly making a separation between the two. Y'all all know this. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and asks, who, the, who do you say I am? Simon says, you are the, or Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, what? I will build my church. I will build Not, I will carry on. I will build my church. It didn't exist. He's saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to build it. In Acts chapter 2, you're in Acts already. Look in chapter 2. Peter, this rock, preaches. And when he preaches, the first church is born. The first mass revival happens. The first presence of the Holy Spirit within man. And they're all what? 
Jews, and they all live where? Either in Jerusalem or from neighboring nations where they've come into Jerusalem, but it all happens in Jerusalem. After that, from there on, look in Acts chapter 3. Look at verse 18. But what Peter preaching again, different time. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, Old Testament, all the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, what we said, that his Christ, his Messiah, would suffer, Jesus did. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Watch this. That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Jesus. So see, he's looking for him to come back right there. Knows he's coming. He's looking for it. And he's preaching. And he says, whom heaven must receive, Jesus, who ascended into heaven, heaven must receive what? Until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Not by everything God told John in Revelation. By everything that God told the prophets a long time ago, Jesus is going to be gone to heaven until the time for restoring all of that that he spoke of in the Old Testament comes. Everything we just read. Verse 24. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him. All proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's him talking to Jews. Look at chapter 5. Just speed it up here. One or two sentences. Look at Acts chapter 5. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you Jews killed by hanging him on a tree. Is what they're saying. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to who? Israel. And forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 6. Turn over another page. Verse 7. And the word of God continued. This is the church we're talking about now. This is the church that we're talking about. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples in, with the church multiplied greatly. Where? In Jerusalem. Jews. And a great many of what? The priests became obedient to the faith. Yeah, to be a Levitical Jew to be a priest. Okay? Came to the faith. The gospel will actually stay in Jerusalem and stay with the Jews even when Paul comes on the picture. It's not until Acts chapter 10 with Peter going to Cornelius that it splits out. But even then, they still use different terms like the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Go to Acts 11 and you'll see an example. Watch this. You'll see an example. It's just little words, but they're important. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Peter's coming back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what happened with Cornelius. And in verse 18, he says... When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, what? Also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Not then to the Gentiles in place of. Then to the Gentiles also, he's granted repentance. It's not until Acts chapter 13 that Paul finally moves his focus to the Gentiles. But he never believed that the Jews were cut off. So, what about us? Well, you can remember the Old Testament law, by the way, always had rules for believing Gentiles. All right? Always did. So it's not like that was a big new thing. But as I said before, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, but they became a wall instead. So Jesus built his church to go to the Gentiles. And ironically, the church decided to own it and build a wall, especially to the Jews. I'll give you an example. Rome is a perfect example. Constantine who was the first Roman emperor in 306 to 337 to convert to Christianity, which I use very loosely because he still worshipped pagan sun gods and all kinds of other junk. He was far from Christian. But he's the first one to pull a state church in, and he created what became the Holy Roman Empire. He replaced Passover with Easter. The Feast of Easter, not just Easter, like we the Feast of Easter. He took the lunar calendar and made a solar calendar took Israel and moved it to Rome, took the temple to Vatican, took the high priest and made it the Pope, took the, Levit- the Levites and made it cardinals. Just basically replicated the whole thing. And we're still doing it. I'm not trying to beat them up. We're still doing it too. It's all about us, not about the Jews. Jews are cut off. As I said, there's brilliant people now. 
Southern Baptists, all kinds of denominations that would say, Presbyterians, that would say, hey, you know what? The Jews are out. They're done. That's no different. So is it any wonder, go to Romans 9, and we'll finish here in the next about five, eight minutes with this. Is it any wonder that Paul, dealing with this, I believe, writes to who? Rome. Now, granted, all what I just told you about Constantine comes later, after Paul's time. But it's funny that it happens to be Rome that Paul's writing to. And I think dealing with some of the same stuff. Romans 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Now, we read this last week, but let me give it to you again because we're going to look at it. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. He says, I wish I could be cut off from Christ in verse 3 for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That means national Israel. In verse 4, they are national Israel. People, group. And to them belong. The adoption, the glory, what? The covenants. You cannot miss that. Old covenant, new covenant. It belongs to them. I hope we've made a big enough case for that. It belongs to them. The giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all. Bless. Amen. Paul, building on that then, go to chapter 11. Paul, building on that case of who these Israelites are, watch what he says in verse 1 of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people for crucifying his son? Has God rejected his people? What does it say? By no means, absolutely not. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. That's all physical. God has not rejected his people. Whom he loved beforehand. That's what foreknew means. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? The Lord, they killed your prophets. This ought to ring a bell. We just came through it. They demolished your altars. And I'm the only one left. And they want to kill me too. But what's God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant of Israel chosen by grace. Now we'll talk about that next week. But that's, then that's leading us into Revelation. Verse 11, skip down. So I ask, did Israel stumble in order to fall so they'd be cast off and forgotten? By no means. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Rather, through the sins of Israel, through, through their trespass, salvation has come where? To the Gentiles. Now, that'd be awesome. We could say, yeah, see, we got it. But there's a comma there. What does it say? What does the rest of it say? So as to make Israel jealous, God's eyes have not left Israel. The point of the Gentiles receiving this covenant is to burn a hole in Israel's heart that they would say, that's ours. That's ours. And look what he says. He goes on. Now, if their trespass or their sins means that the world is blessed or riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean, which means they're going to come back into it? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. Hello. Don't miss that. See what he's telling you. Now, I'm speaking to you. You ever want to wonder if any of the Bible is written to you? Here's one of the rare places is specifically written to you. I am speaking to you, Gentiles. He says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, because he he was the one that carried the gospel to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? In order somehow to what? Make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. Even Paul's focus in sharing the gospel with the Gentiles was to make the Jews jealous. There, watch. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death? And then skip down to verse 17. Still talking to Gentiles. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although you Gentile, Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. What he's saying is you have this tree, this covenant, this blessing of covenant with God, and there's natural branches this covenant was promised to Israel. And some, not all, didn't say all, some were broken off and you were grafted in. It means you don't belong there. You're not that kind of tree. You're not a Jew. 
You're not an Israelite. It wasn't made with you. But you're grafted in. You're fully part of it because you've been grafted into it. And he says that, watch what he says. If that's happened, if you've been grafted in like that, he said, you're sharing in this nourishing root. Do not become arrogant towards the branches. That's exactly what replacement theology does. It says it's ours. Now you blew it. He cut you off, and it's ours. It's exactly what it does. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, hey, you know what? They were broke. Look, I swear, I don't know how this is not black and white to people. You will say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. The Jews were cut off, and now we have the promises. That's basically word for word what he's saying. But watch what he says. That is true. Partially, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you better stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about nationally. He's talking about Gentiles as a whole or Jews as a whole. Okay? He's saying, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. And then he says that, Look down at verse 23. And they, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, Gentile, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature. Well, us being in this is contrary to to nature. Into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own tree? Now, I'm not talking about a dual covenant, as some say. John Hagee's one of those, I don't mind telling you, that, that believes in Israel saved by their faith in Yahweh, Jehovah, and we're saved by Jesus. That's absolutely not true. Not even a tiny bit. There's one tree here, one tree, one, one covenant. It's made with Jesus Christ. That's why he says, then you will know who I am. One way, one truth, one life, no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. I'm not saying that, 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 what I'm saying is this. Unlike before where the Gentiles had to swear allegiance to the nation of Israel, but couldn't go into the temple. Now, Gentiles have the same Holy Spirit within them that, is with, that was promised to the Jewish people. It's not replacement, it's involvement. You see what I'm saying? We're in it together. So, if it makes you feel less important, then that's pride. I'm just telling you. The church is precious. The church is precious. The church is precious. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for his church. I am not downplaying the church. I'm only saying, let's not throw Israel out just because we want the church to be the only story. And there is no Israelite today, listen to me very carefully, there is no Israelite living today that's going to heaven apart from being in the body of Christ, the church. Okay? That's what I want you to understand. Any Israelite living on this earth at this moment in time is going to heaven by no other means than becoming a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. What I'm saying is, it doesn't mean they're not an Israelite anymore. Okay? Uh, so let's, let's finish this off with a couple of problem passages, and I'll stop. But I want to give you a few real quick. Matthew 21. Just real quick. Go to these really fast, and let me give them to you. Jesus is cursing the uh, people of that generation. And he says in verse 43, this is one people bring up, replacement theologists. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, will be taken away from you. He's speaking to these leaders, these Pharisees, and given to a people producing its fruit. Verse 45 tells you they perceived he was speaking about them. Well, first of all, we have to understand what the word a people means. He will take it from you, Jews, National Jews, and give it to a people. Guess what the word a people is? Is ethne. You know what ethne is? Ethne is the word you heard in that video earlier today, repeated by nearly everybody. I will be going to the ha people group. I will be going to the such and such people group. I will be going to the such and such people group. People group is ethne. I'll be going to the ha ethne. I'll be going to this ethne, that ethne, this ethne. Guess what? Those are nations. Those are national people. Those are national peoples. When he says that he's going to take it and give it to a people, he's talking about a national people. The word literally means nation or tribe. Get that. Nation or tribe. I'm going to take them from you 
and I'm going to give it to a nation or tribe that produces its fruit. Now, that can't be the church because we're not a nation or tribe. We're all nations and tribes. That can't be what he's talking about. It also means if you, if you say it's the Gentiles, then that means that there are no more Jews getting saved. But there are Jews that are saved. So it can't be that. So what I believe is pretty clearly being stated is he's talking about a future generation, a future Israel, national people, group, ethne, future one that he's going to give it the kingdom to. And that would be a millennial kingdom. Remember, his disciples were looking for kingdom when he went up. He says, not for you to know. It's not for this time. It's for a later time. Romans 9, verse 6. I'm just going to try to finish quick because I don't want to hang this over. Uh, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who, this is Romans 9, 6. Not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. All he's saying there is that it's by grace alone that you're saved. Your national identity doesn't automatically make you saved. But it also doesn't mean your national identity is lost. He's just saying that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't automatically mean you're saved. It might be a people group, but you're not automatically saved. Go to Galatians 6. Two, two more promise. They're both in Galatians. Galatians 6. He says in Galatians 6, verse 15, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You're a new creation in Christ. And he says, verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. People say Israel of God. That's the church. But that can't be the church. And you know how I know? Because he said, peace be upon them and the Israel of God. If the Israel of God is the church, then who is the them? I'm telling you, the them is the church. The Israel of God is the believing people of Israel who are part of the church. That's what he's saying. Back up one more. Galatians 3. Just turn back a few pages. Galatians 3. This is problem passage number four. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Watch this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're all in Christ Jesus, then you're Abraham's heirs according to the promise. You are part of the promise, yes. But does that mean you're not unique? There's neither Jew or Greek. See, it says it right there. But it also says there's neither male nor female. I'm pretty sure that no baby's going to come out of this body. Pretty sure. Just because I believe in Jesus doesn't suddenly mean I can do anything a woman can do or a woman can do anything a guy can do. So him saying there's neither Jew nor Greek doesn't mean there's not significance to either one of those. It just means that in Christ you're one. Just like as a male or a female, you're still one, but you've got different purposes. So you're unique. You're unique. You are part of the body of Christ, yes, but you're unique in purpose. So that's where I stand at it. And what does that matter to us? It's like this. It's real simple. It's real simple. If he will keep his word to Israel and you're a part of that new covenant, he will keep his word to you. That should be what's so encouraging about this to you, that God is going to keep his word. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to be saved because I see him fulfilling his word to Israel. Cool? Everybody need to go take a deep breath. I know. (laughs) And remember, it's on podcast. You can always go back and listen to it slower if you want. God, you're awesome. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for the time we've taken. Um, I love you. You're just awesome. Thank you so much, Lord. I pray that you would walk uh, before us, beside us, above us, below us, behind us, God, that when everybody sees us, they see you and you only. And I thank you for the privilege of carrying your word to the nations, Lord. I thank you for the fact that you have been faithful to Israel and you will continue to be. And I thank you that you have involved us, that you've grafted us in. God, thank you that you've let even, even a crumb from the table come to me. Lord, uh, I'm excited for what you're doing there. I don't care. I'm not jealous of it or bitter or angry. I'm excited for what you're doing with Israel. And I know every time I see something happen with them, it reminds me that you're faithful to your word. And that lets me know that I'm saved. And uh, you're awesome. I ask all these things. I want you to be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.